0: Good morning. morning. You ever had one of those days where you try to be organized and together so you can be effective and efficient and it just never works? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Thank goodness I can laugh at it. There was a time when I wouldn't be able to laugh at that. Like it would really upset me. I would be out of rhythm. I would be out of sync. I couldn't really do this if everything wasn't just going perfectly. Stuff gets upset. Open up my notes and they're upside down. And if I try to move them and I can't get my fingers to grab them and hold on to them, that would just send me into a spiral and I'd be a mess the rest of the sermon. But that's not the case anymore. God in his mercy and goodness has brought me to a place where I'm a little more comfortable with uncomfortableness. Wait, that doesn't make sense. A little more comfortable with uncomfortable that that okay, well, something like that that would be a different way of saying it. <laughs> oh. It really is one of those days. I have no idea what's going to actually happen in the next 20 minutes. I know exactly what I'm supposed to say, but I have no idea what's actually coming out of my mouth. Cuz it's one of those days. <laughs> Let's look at John chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 35 through 51 today, where Jesus calls his first group of disciples. And I laughed when I sent Stephanie my sermon notes. As I was putting it together, I started putting the sermon together, thinking, oh, this will be quick. It'll be short. There's not much. It just, you know, it's, this will be just short. I thought it'd be a short sermon, right? And uh no, you know, it's really long and. Yeah, way longer than I thought. <laughs> so. Starting in verse 35, the next day, this is after John has revealed Jesus as the Lamb of God. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and he said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour, or like four o'clock in the afternoon. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first went and found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at Peter and said, You are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and, the, and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, and he said, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Thank you for your mercies and your goodness and the way you just love us in so many different ways all the time. Thank you that you've given us your word. Thank you that we have your spirit to help us understand what your word means to us and what we're supposed to glean from it and what it is you want us to understand about you and us and walking with you. And I pray that now, Lord, in this time when we're walking through this passage of these two incidences with Jesus and his first disciples, that you would just open up our minds. Maybe even let us just remember what it was like to know you and find you for the first time. And to revel in the joy and the glory of being one of your disciples and all the good things you have done for us and in us. And open our eyes to understand how to follow you and to be disciples who walk with Jesus. And we ask it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So here we talk about is. I mean, the whole thing starts out with this the next day. okay. so if you're following the time sequence, day one goes back a few verses when the Pharisees and the Sadducees come to John the Baptist from Jerusalem to find out who he is. The next day is in those following verses where John the Baptist reveals Jesus as the Lamb of God. And then verse 35, where we're starting in this passage today, is the third day where he says Jesus is the Lamb of God again. Now, notice how fast events have started to occur. In just three days, Jesus has gone from being unknown to being revealed as the Messiah and to call his first disciples, and then Nathaniel. All of this in just three days. His, nobody knows who he is. Nobody knows this is the Messiah. He's revealed as that. And then he calls disciples just in a stunning progress of how fast things are changing with the revelation of the coming of the Messiah. And then in this passage, Jesus is revealed for the second time as the Lamb of God. Remember, the day before is when John makes his large declaration of Jesus as the Lamb of God. But it appears from the way that it's written that nobody followed Jesus I mean, don't you think that's kind of stunning? That's behold, you know, John the Baptist is standing there in the river and yells out, Behold the Lamb of God, pointing at Jesus. And people just go, huh? Okay. What's for lunch? Really? Nobody responded to that? And so the next day Jesus walks by and John has to do it again. Behold the Lamb of God. Hey, maybe we should, like, if John's right, maybe we should follow this guy and find out what he thinks and see if this is really real. But John has to do it twice? But that's the way it works. Most people don't recognize Jesus as their Savior the first time they're exposed to him. Think about your own Walk with Christ. Think about your own moment of realizing who he was and putting your faith in him. That wasn't the first time you heard the name Jesus. It wasn't the first time you heard about Jesus. It might have been the seventh or eighth time that you heard about Jesus before you really believed. It's extremely rare. I mean like hen's tooth rare for someone to believe in Jesus the very first time they hear him. And so what we see in John's gospel here is he's just revealing the reality that most people come to faith in Christ through a process that takes time. Often it appears and feels like it's instantaneous, but in reality it takes time to get there. And that just seems to be okay with God and Jesus, that it takes time to believe in him and time to grow into him and time to be who he's called us to be. God and Jesus seem perfectly okay with it taking a long time for his disciples to follow him and follow him more fully, which is just kind of stunning because, I mean, we live in a culture that's impetuous, right? It's deliver today, deliver immediately. We've become accustomed to instantaneous results, and God just doesn't seem to be that Uptight about instantaneous results. In fact, it actually appears most of the time like he prefers the long path, the long road to accomplishing what he's wanting to do. And then Jesus turns to these guys that start following him Andrew and another guy that we don't know who it is. Did you notice in this whole passage the second disciple there at the, by the riverside that follows Jesus with Andrew is never named. We have no idea who it is. Oh, there's lots of speculation. Many people think it's John the Apostle that wrote this gospel. And others think, no, not for sure. But the bottom line is this person's never named and no real clue is given anywhere to tell us who it is. So Andrew and an unnamed person start following Jesus. And Jesus He does what anybody would do if you're walking along and two people you don't know are following you. He turns and asks him, what do you want? What is it you're seeking, right? The words Jesus used are, what are you seeking? That's a perfectly normal question. I mean, you and I would ask a similar question. Maybe we'd use different words. If we're walking down Fifth Avenue and somebody's following us and we realize they're following us, what do you want? And of course they're kinda of caught off guard there. or at least their response sounds like they hadn't really thought this through. Right, I know that never happens to you. You're doing something that you haven't really thought through it yet. But that's kind of the way it sounds here. I mean really I mean, uh, what are you seeking? Rabbi. Right, you can almost imagine this long pause. Oh, uh, Rabbi, we uh uh where where are you staying? <laughs> yeah. I'm I mean At times, I sometimes think, is John writing a comedy or is he writing a historical narrative? (laughs) But then again, you can imagine there were pretty comical moments when people interacting with Jesus. And this appears to be one of those times where they're serious and trying to be serious-minded, but it just sounds like maybe they didn't think this through. And they were caught off guard by his question and didn't really, weren't prepared to answer it. That seems to be a common occurrence with Jesus. He asks us questions we're not prepared to answer when he asks it. And yet, even still, there's more to this question than just why are you following me? He's asking them more than the obvious. It implies a question that we still must even answer today when we first encounter Christ. Who are you seeking? Which Jesus are you looking for? Which Jesus are we looking for? The real one or one that we've made up? And as you go through the gospel, this question comes up over and over when people approach Jesus and at least hint at the idea of not write out say they want to be one of his disciples. And this question comes back up of, well, what are you seeking? And the question really, the heart of the question is, are you looking for the sugar daddy Jesus? Or are you looking for the Messiah? Are you looking for the give me stuff Jesus? Or are you looking for the savior? Are you looking for the entertainer Jesus who does these miracles like Herod does, King Herod, at the end of the gospel? Or are you looking for the one who can find and deliver peace to your soul? Which Jesus are you looking for? And then Jesus there, you know, they say, where are you staying? And Jesus gives this response. Come and see. Jesus' first response to them is also the same response for us when we first inquire of Jesus. Try to remember what it was like before you trusted Christ and you were trying to figure out who this Jesus character is and what does he really like and what does he really do? And he's like, come and see. And we're asking this question, who are you? And his answer to us is come and see. And in effect, that's the answer for us too when we are sharing the gospel. We'll get to that in a minute. But then we get to verses 40 and 42 where God starts talking with Andrew about going to Peter. Uh, Yes, it's true. There's nothing in the text that says Andrew heard from God. But it's obviously clear that as one of the first, look, these are the first two people that decided to follow Jesus. How many people were standing on that shoreline on the Jordan River that afternoon when John, for the second time, pointed to Jesus and said, behold, the Lamb of God. A lot more than three. Like Andrew and this unnamed disciple are not the only people standing there on the riverbank. But according to the narrative, they're the only two that turned around and followed Jesus. And they're the first two that started following Jesus. That's not random. That's not coincidental. There's no randomness to anything that God does. And I would even go so far to say is there's no randomness to anything that happens in our lives. We may not understand it, we may not be able to make sense of it. But what appears to us often as random is actually quite the opposite. And so these two guys responding and following Jesus was an act of the Holy Spirit. God the Father pushing them to follow him as part of his planning purpose. I mean, it wasn't just random that they were standing there that day and heard john say behold the lamb of god at the very least andrew runs a fishing business in the sea of galilee which is at the least about a half a day to three quarters of a day's walk away from wherever they are why wasn't andrew in the boat with peter catching fish why wasn't this unnamed disciple off doing something else Why were they standing there that day? Because they had a divine appointment with Jesus. And each of us in this room have had a divine appointment with Jesus. You happen to be standing in a particular spot or sitting in a particular spot. One day, when someone with the gospel of Jesus Christ, spoke to you. And this was no different. And Andrew, having spent the day with Jesus, gets up and he goes and finds his brother Peter and tells him, look, we found the Messiah. Look, part of John's purpose here is to help us as the readers understand how Peter came to meet Jesus. So you got to remember this is 90 around 90 AD. This has been at least 60 years since this incident happened. And most of the people reading this gospel after John writes it are going to be Gentiles who've never been in Israel or Judea. And while Peter was very well known to the first readers of John's gospel, Andrew probably was not. He probably was not very well known. And so John's having to introduce who this guy Andrew is and what the connections are. And he, but he's more than just doing the historical data dump of how who this person is and how they came to know Jesus and what connection they have. He's also giving us a real life example of how we are to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. To give testimony to Jesus and who he is to those Closest to us, our family and our friends. In some ways, it's the easiest thing to do. And in some ways, it's the hardest thing to do. To take Jesus to our family and friends. And then you get to verse 43, which is the next day. So, okay. So we got Andrew and this unnamed disciple spending the day with Jesus. Andrew jumps up and runs and finds Peter, brings him over and meets, introduces him to Jesus and Jesus changes his name. This is one of the first clues we have as we read through the Gospel of John that John's not writing a chronological narrative the same way that we are used to studying history and biographies of individuals, but that instead John's following a more thematic kind of presentation about Jesus and his life and his works by bringing this issue of John, I mean, Peter's name being changed from Simon to Peter long before what most of us know is that a moment it occurs at Caesarea Philippi when he confesses Jesus as the Messiah. John's doing something different. And then the next day, Jesus goes and calls Philip to be his disciple. Okay, so this is now day four since the Jerusalem officials came to inquire of John the Baptist. Philip is an unusual case. Because, see, the way things worked in that day was you're a teacher. You present that you're, you're open to receiving disciples and students who will follow you and listen and understand, you know, and follow your teachings. That's what most of them did. But they did not call someone to follow them. They didn't say, hey, you follow me. They just made themselves available and the individual has to make the choice. The student chose the teacher not the teacher choosing the students. That's the way it worked in that day. And this is how Jesus handles almost all the other disciples. But Philip is different. Jesus tells Philip, follow me. He doesn't wait for Philip to ask if he can follow Jesus. He tells him, follow me. Why? Why does he treat Philip different? Why does he tell Philip, follow me, instead of, waiting for him to ask if he can follow me like Andrew and the unnamed disciple did. Why does he break the protocol and do it wrong? Right? If the school of the Pharisees was there, they would have said, Jesus, what are you doing? This is not the way you do this. Come on. Get with the program and follow the rules. And I think that's part of the answer. Jesus treats Philip differently in part because... He ain't going to follow their rules. He's not going to be conformed to their idea of how a rabbi is to teach and to behave and to acquire his students. But it's more than just Jesus wants to upset the apple cart and break the rules. He's not just a rabbi. Remember, he ain't just another teacher. He is the messiah. He is the savior of the world. He is God. He is displaying his authority as God when he says, when he commands Philip, follow me. This is not like anybody else. So he's not going to behave like anybody else. He's going to behave like the king he is. Kings don't ask people to do things. Kings tell people to do things. And Jesus is displaying his authority here by commanding Philip to follow him. Now then it says this kind of unusual thing there right at the end of this passage about Philip being from the same town Bethsaida as Andrew and Peter. And we're like, wait a minute. I thought Peter and Andrew lived in Capernaum. I mean, that's where Jesus does all of his ministry. That's where Peter and Andrew you know, had their houses and where their boats came in and out of. How would, how are they from Bethsaida if they were in Capernaum? Well, this is probably something much like Peter and Andrew being from born and having originally grown up in Bethsaida and then for whatever reasons moving to Capernaum to operate and have their regular home and business there. Just the same way that Jesus was called Jesus of Nazareth although Nazareth was never a home base or a headquarters for his ministry and activity. He was from Nazareth, but he never stayed there as the Messiah. All of his activity was centered in Capernaum. Capernaum was the headquarters of the Jesus ministry. But yet he's not called Jesus of Capernaum, he's called Jesus of Nazareth because people identified you by the city you were born in. We look at what Jesus is doing with Philip And Andrew and Peter and now Nathaniel. And we see this kind of end result of all of us as individuals investigating Jesus. And this words of Jesus, follow me, this command is one that requires a decision. Yes, it's true that he didn't wait for for Philip to ask, but the moment he commands Philip, Philip has to make a choice. Philip has to make a decision one flowing from this choice is Jesus who he says he is. And we are the same way. We have to make this choice, is Jesus who he says he is? Because if he is, I want to follow him. I better follow him. But if he's not, well, this is a fool's errand to follow him. And if all of this wasn't like Crazy enough, it has to get a little more crazy with the way he calls Nathaniel. And Philip then goes out and finds Nathaniel. What's fascinating is we don't know what the relationship between Philip and Nathaniel are. Are they brothers like Peter and Andrew, or are they just friends? Interestingly enough, it doesn't say. At the very least, they're friends, if not relatives, blood relatives. And so Philip goes out to find Nathaniel. And then we have this really kind of like, "Whoa, really?" response from Nathaniel. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Like, wait, that's your first response. Philip comes and tells you he's found the Messiah, and his name is Jesus of Nazareth. And your and, and your and like your instantaneous response, the utterance of your lips is, "Can anything good come from Nazareth?" Like, really? This is Jesus we're talking about here. And that's your response. Nathaniel's response to Philip's testimony is one that's repeated often by others. Just go to John chapter 7, verses 41 and 52. And you hear the same response. Can anything good come from Nazareth when someone's talking about Jesus as the Messiah? But yet that doesn't seem to bother Jesus. Have you noticed? But I mean, did you notice that? He has a, Nathaniel's response to Philip was pretty insulting of Jesus. But that doesn't seem to bother Jesus because just a few minutes later, he walks up and before he even says a word to Jesus, Jesus belts out across the room or across the square or across the field, wherever it was, look, behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. I don't know about you, but I typically don't respond that way to someone who insults me. See, Nathaniel's skepticism at his first hearing about Jesus is not the issue. It is normal and healthy to be skeptical the first time someone hears of Jesus. We, as we share the gospel with others and tell them about Jesus, should not be surprised at their skepticism the first time we share Jesus with them. We should expect it. It is normal and healthy to be skeptical at first. The issue isn't that they're skeptical. The issue is to reject Jesus once you have met him. And that's what Nathaniel didn't do. When Nathaniel actually met Jesus, he didn't reject Jesus. He embraced him as the Messiah and the Savior of the world, as the King of Israel. That was his actual confession. There at the end of this passage, You are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. In chapter 7, those who respond to Jesus with that insulting skepticism reject him once they've actually met him. And that's the problem. And then we have Philip's very wise response to his friend Nathaniel when Nathaniel expresses skepticism that he's found the Messiah. We'll just come and see. See, and Philip's response is a good one for us when we testify to Jesus' affecting our lives to others. And they show kind of a skepticism about who this Jesus is and what he's actually done for us. We'll just come and see. You come, look at these words in the Bible, and see for yourself what Jesus is like. And then when Nathanael comes to Jesus, Jesus shows us his supernatural knowledge and knowing the inner heart of man. Right? His response to Nathanael is that behold an Israelite right, who is there in no deceit. And Nathanael says to him, "How do you know me?" Right? they've not even spoken yet to each other, and Jesus is making this declaration about the kind of character that Nathanael is. And Jesus answers him, "Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you." These are signs of his deity and messiahship. He has supernatural knowledge. He saw Nathaniel sitting under the fig tree when Philip walked up to him to invite to tell him about Jesus. Jesus saw that happening, even though Jesus wasn't anywhere nearby. That's supernatural knowledge that can only be given by God. But it isn't just that. That by itself would be stunning and shocking that he has this kind of supernatural knowledge. He actually knows Nathaniel's inner heart, having never met him before. By saying, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. What? Are you kidding me? You know the heart of this man, even though you've never met him before. Only God knows the heart of man. So right up front, at the very beginning of this gospel, John is displaying Jesus' deity as well as his messiahship because he has knowledge that only God can have, the knowledge of the heart of a man or woman. Nathaniel gives a response that shows he did see Jesus as the Messiah. These titles, Son of God and the King of Israel, these are messianic titles. They're, they're messianic titles that everybody understood in that day. And they came with expectations of what the Messiah would be and what he would do in Jesus's day. This, is, this isn't just, you know, flattery kind of, you know, work yourself into a good position to where this person will like you. These titles, this way he responds, that's not that. These declarations come with monstrous expectations. Massive, big, huge expectations. When you say to someone, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. That's a problem. It becomes a problem for Jesus. Because now he's got to manage expectations. And that's why at the end of this passage, he calls himself the son of man. He uses a title that is less expecting. It has less of the direct political and military expectations than King of Israel and the Son of God. Jesus intentionally uses that because it creates less trouble. It also has a wide range of meanings while at the same time holding the title of the person that is described in Daniel chapter 7 whom God gives all authority to. We'll do a deep dive on the Son of Man term when we get to John chapter 3 verse 13. I really, really wanted to do that here but this has already taken so long and so much time that it's like we'll be here for another 30 minutes if I go into the Son of Man title. So we'll just have to wait on that one. But coming back to Jesus' response to Nathaniel after he declares him the son of God and the king of kings, he says, well, do you believe just because I said I saw you under the fig tree? <laughs> well, you can almost hear, you can imagine, right? If you if you have one of those active imaginations, you can almost imagine the way this conversation was going. Right? <laughs> you believe because I did something so small as say I saw you under the fig tree? Buddy, you ain't seen nothing yet. I'm going to show you some stuff you can't believe or blow your mind. Right? I will show you greater things than these. And then Jesus goes into this in verse 51, this this somewhat confusing kind of response of, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What? 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 Why are you responding? Why did you say that, Jesus? What's, what are you doing? Well, what's significant is first to grasp that the you, the two you's, the two pronouns you that's hard to say you to the two you's and not talk about sheep, right? The two you's that he says in that statement are plural. See, up until this moment the pronouns have been singular. Jesus is talking to Nathaniel. But at this moment in verse 51, It's like Jesus steps back, then turns and looks at everybody standing there. Nathaniel, Peter, Andrew, the unnamed disciple, Philip. He looks at all of them and says, you all are going to see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And then this whole thing about angels descending and ascending is a direct reference to Jacob and his dreams of angels descending from the ladders in Genesis chapter 28, verses 10 through 19. And yes, we are going to go there and read that. So turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 28, verses 10 through 19. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? There is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had made him under his head or put under his head and set up a pillar and poured oil on top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of the city was Luz at first. So, okay. All right, Jesus. So let me get this straight in this moment here is we're just getting started in our relationship as me as your disciple. And you're saying that I'm going, you're going to, I'm going, I'm going to see heaven open and angels asc- descending and ascending on this ladder. Like our forefather, Jacob did. Okay. But God was at the top of this ladder and God spoke to Jacob and he made promises to Jacob are you making these same promises to me, Jesus? I mean, look at the promises given to Jacob by God that he will, that the land, all this land will be his, and that, off, that his offspring shall be like the dust. Jacob's offspring will be like the dust, spreading out to the four corners of the compass. And in Jacob's offspring, all the families of the earth will be blessed and God will keep him wherever he goes and never leave him until he has done everything that he has promised. Jesus, this is a loaded illusion you're making. This isn't just a direct reference to that. Jesus is changing the world. He's turning everything upside down in this moment. You see. Jesus is the ladder. In Genesis 28. And in this moment he's telling them. That the angels will ascend and descend to heaven. Through me. Because I. Am the gateway to heaven. And you Nathanael and all the other disciples standing there with him because he's addressing all of them the plural you you all you all are Jacob they are receiving a promise from Jesus that they will multiply and spread to the four corners of the of the earth and that he will be with them wherever they go and That all the nations and all the families of the earth will be blessed through them, his disciples. I don't know how much of this they understood in that moment. But at some point they got it. Do you get it? Do you get it? This is his promise to you and me and to this church that we will spread to the four corners of the earth and all the nations will be blessed through us. And he will be with us until he has done, till he has accomplished, fulfilled everything he has promised to us. I don't know about you, but that makes me a little scared, a little nervous, a little freaky weird. That I'm going to do this? Like, wait, wait, I just... Can I, I just want to have a nice life, Jesus. I really just want to, you know, enjoy my days, have a good family, enjoy my friends, bless people. Life is good. But like this big worldwide, no, thank you. That's, that's a little too big. I don't want to be famous. I don't want to be famous. No, just, don't you, no, 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 I don't, no, 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 no. But the problem is, he is God. If he says, this is what you're going to go do. Guess what we are going to go do. Even though I won't be able to say it when it's time to do it. We're going to go do this. See, and there's just so much loaded in this one verse. Verse. It isn't just all these promises that I've been telling you. Jesus is also making a double word play on Jacob and Nathaniel. Right? Nathaniel, what did he describe Nathaniel as? A true Israelite in whom there is no deceit. What is the problem with Jacob? I mean, what is the, like, there's just this giant, gigantic, like, room-sized problem with God making all these promises to Jacob There in chapter 28 of the book of Genesis. And what is it? The man's a lying cheat. His name means deceitfulness. And God makes all these promises to this lying cheat. I mean, do you remember why he was on his way to Haran there in in chapter 28? He's running from Esau. And why is he running from Esau? Because he cheated Esau out of his birthright. He's such a lying cheat. He even robbed Esau of his birthright with the help of his mom. And so he's running to get away from Esau before Esau kills him. And God makes these kind of promises to him. But now, as is often the case in scriptures, when God does something for the second time, he does it backwards. These same promises made to Jacob are now being made to the disciples of Jesus But there is not deceit. There is integrity. And we are called to be disciples with integrity in the way we interact with others and the way we present Jesus. But that's not all in this verse. That place where Jacob saw the ladder, he called it Bethel. It became the place in First and second Samuel, where the tabernacle resided for many, many years. It was the home of God because that is what Beth El means. Beth in Hebrew means home and El means God. That's God's home. That's why Jacob called it that. This is the place where God resides. This is where God dwells and lives because look, you got this ladder going up and down from earth to heaven with angels climbing up and down it so they can get access to the earth and God's at the top telling me things and saying promises. This is obviously the house of God. Just as Nathaniel is the new Jacob and Jesus is the latter, Jesus is also the new Bethel. He is the new house of God because wherever he is, is where God is. And then I mentioned this whole craziness about the son of man. It's literally, understanding this term son of man is an entire sermon by itself. And so we'll just have to wait a few weeks until we get to John chapter 3, verse 13, to really do a deep dive on this title that Jesus uses for himself most often above all others, the Son of Man. So here we are, right? Nice stuff. Hey, thanks for the tremendous uh, teaching here about all these insights and all this illusions and all this like stuff that's not even obvious unless you really know the Old Testament. and But so what? So what? You and I have to answer each question that Jesus asked in this passage. What are you seeking? Which Jesus do you want? Come and see who I am and follow me. Each of us have to answer these questions. We cannot escape it. We can try to postpone it and delay it. But we still got to answer it. Sooner or later, you have to answer all three questions. What are you going to do? What are you going to do with these three questions? At the expense of ruining everybody's afternoon because you can't get this song out of your head. Remember the theme song from cops? What are you going to do? What are you going to do when they come for you? What are you going to do when Jesus calls you? It would be wonderful to stand here and tell you I've already answered that question. About what I'm going to do when Jesus calls me. I mean, I'm standing here as your pastor. Obviously, I've answered that question. The problem is, is he it every stinking day as soon as I get up. He calls me every day when I wake up with something to do. And that something is follow me. And Every day when I wake up, I have to decide, am I going to follow him? Some days I do, and some days not so much. It's an uncomfortable confession. Even this week, I wasn't really seven for seven, if you get my point. I was like maybe three of seven. Which 300, that's actually more than 300, but being a baseball fan, a 300 average would be great. I'm just not sure a 300 average is great for a disciple of Jesus. We often think of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. Yet, most of the time, and this was the heart of the statement at the beginning of our service about feeling... a. Grief for those we care about. Yet most of the time, we just need to take the gospel to the end of our kitchen table more than we need to take it to the ends of the earth. See, we ask those we share Jesus with to do just what we have done. Come and see Jesus for yourself. Okay, following him's not that bad after all. It's not that hard Mostly, not that hard, to tell someone in my family about what Jesus has done for me. And then when they respond with natural skepticism, to say to them, come and see for yourself who Jesus is. And that's where I'm going to leave you this morning. Get up again tomorrow morning, And answer his call to follow him. And when you share Jesus with others and they respond with skepticism. Just tell them, come and see who Jesus is for yourself. I can do that. I can do that. Lay out a wonderful, convincing argument to persuade someone to trust in Jesus as their savior. Like Paul does so often in the book of Acts. Well, I'm not so sure about that. I'm not sure I'm up for that task. But come and see for yourself who Jesus is. I can do that. I can say that. Because I've done it. You can say that because you have done it. And it's not that frightening. It's not that confrontational to simply respond, come and see for yourself who Jesus is. in a very odd sort of difficult way to explain, that's what we do each day. When he calls us to follow him, we have to see for ourselves who this Jesus is we're following today. And in doing so, we start to discover which Jesus am I looking for. Look for the Jesus who is. And look for our idolatrous hearts wanting to find the Jesus we want. And when we discover that, submit to the Jesus who is and trust him, even though he's not the Jesus we want. Lord, thank you for your mercies. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you, Jesus, that you are who you say you are help each of us to just walk with you and embrace you as you really are. In your holy, precious name, I ask it, Father. Amen.